Well, Merry Christmas, church. It's, uh, it's good to be together this time of year and celebrate the birth of Christ. And it was a birth like no other. Everybody in this room, everybody in this room had a beginning. You did. There was a time when you were not, and now you are. There was a time when you did not exist. It's, it's hard to think about. It's impossible for us to imagine it because we weren't there. But then... At the right time, you were born, you came into existence, you began to live. It's, the, it's the, the birthday. Well, the same cannot be said about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because even though he was born as a baby, and he became what he never was, he became a man, this was not his beginning. This was his incarnation, his taking on of flesh. But the second member of the Godhead, the second member of the Trinity, he existed in eternity past. This is why John tells us in the opening of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And much speculation has been made about what God was doing before creation, if you can even speak of before and after, when time wasn't even a thing. It's, it's a mystery. It belongs to the Lord, what He was doing then. It's, it's not information that's been given to us. But God has revealed much to us in His Word. In fact, He's revealed to us everything we need to know about Him in His Word. And so, this Christmas Eve morning, if we're going to know what it means that God took on flesh, we must know who God is. And that begins in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for your son. He didn't have to come. No one coerced him. No one twisted his arm. Lord, you came of your own volition to save your people from their sins. And we thank you. And Lord, I pray that you would show us who the baby lying in the manger is this morning. We don't want to celebrate this season in a way that, that takes away from what you've done. But we want to fix our eyes and our hearts rightly on our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's in his name we pray. And Lord, we ask for your help that we might see and know and, and grasp these great things that you have done. It's in your name we pray. Amen. The Bible is primarily God's special revelation about himself. It tells us everything he wants us to know about him and everything we need to know and everything we ought to know about him. And the reason why it's so important is because everything ultimately is about God. Your life in this world, the life you live, all religion, this world, everything in one way or another is for God, either opposing Him or exalting Him, but everything in this universe, 
is to be understood according to its relationship with the true and living God. And for this reason, the most important information you can have and you can know is the information that God has given about Himself. And in the first chapter of this book, this book that God gave us, He introduces Himself as the Creator. And He alone is the Creator. It's not one God among many, and it's not, well, this is His story as opposed to some other story, and is so is so commonly thought today. We're not talking about God as a helpful idea that works for some people and, and not for others. No, we're talking about the actual God who truly does exist, who reveals Himself in Scripture, and who made everything that is, including you. And He must exist. For the very fact that there is something rather than nothing demands a God. A being who is eternal, who never had a beginning and never had an end. R.C. Sproul writes on this, and he said, In a profound way, if anything exists, anything exists, then something has always existed. You see, if there was ever absolutely nothing, then nothing could possibly exist now because you cannot get something out of nothing. Conversely, if there is something now, that, in and of itself, demonstrates that there was always something. And that something must have always existed and had the power of being in and of himself. And what he's saying is the fact that anything exists means that God must exist, not as a part of his creation, but he stands outside of, his, outside of it as its maker. And not only as its maker, but he stands outside of it as is master. Another thing that he reveals about himself here in this opening verse of the Bible is that by virtue of creating the world, he also owns the world. Well, we all know if you make something, by and large, it should be yours. When you paint a painting, it belongs to you, and you have every right to be angry if somebody comes and claims it as their own. It's theft. And if you build something, a house, something as simple as a shed, no one can come and take it from you because it's yours. And if somebody does try to take it, they're stealing from you. Well, in the same way, the whole earth, all of creation, because he is the one who made it, it belongs to God. Everyone and everything belongs to him. You know, sometimes a person's home or the amount of land that they own, maybe you've gone to visit a friend and, and it caught you by surprise. They, you know, you... They were your friend for a long time, and then all of a sudden you discover they have 750 acres somewhere. Sometimes head of states in the world, they will have large, extravagant lawns and holdings. And all of it's to show off the immensity of their power and their wealth. In fact, some ancient kings would go so far as to call themselves the kings of the whole world. Now, of course, they weren't. They barely owned a portion of it. But for God, it's true. He really does own everything. But not only does it belong to him, his handiwork is all over it. Creation itself teaches us about God. How? Say, so how does it teach us about God? Well, imagine looking at a painting, maybe a painting of a landscape by some famous artist. You can actually learn about the painter himself by looking at the work that he's done, can't you? You can tell how hard he was 
pushing the brush against the canvas. You can tell if the strokes that he used were short or fast or long. You can tell the skill of the painter almost immediately, how good of a painter he is, how creative he is. You can tell what colors he prefers to use. All kinds of things can be learned, not by looking at the painter, but by just studying the works of his hands. Well, this world that you live in is the work of the Lord God's hands, and it tells us things about him. In theology, it's called general revelation. What do we learn about God by studying the world that he has made? And there is a lot to be learned. He's creative. He's very creative. He, couldn't have, he could have given us a single type of tree, but he gave us thousands. He could have given us a single kind of food, but he's given us thousands more. He is creative, and he is wise. Who could have thought up all of the biological mechanisms for life but God? All knowledge we have about life, it's merely derived from examining what God has already done. In a way, we are simply thinking his thoughts after him. And among all the millions of other things we learn in creation, we learn that God is powerful. I mean, who could speak and a universe so large that it defies the imagination comes into existence? God speaks and everything is. Well, what does that tell you about God? His power is immense and immeasurable. We, we don't have a scale for measuring this, not even close. He created all things. And every discovery of man made since has had its origin in the mind of God. He is the supreme creator, unhindered by any limitation. There is no problem God cannot solve. There is no material He cannot imagine into being. Nothing can prevent Him from doing whatsoever He pleases. He is the maker and master of heaven and earth. That's how he reveals himself in Genesis 1.1. But he reveals himself in many other ways besides creating. Shortly after creation, he shows himself to be a judge. He sentences Adam and Eve after they rebelled against him in Genesis 3. In Genesis uh, nine, uh, 6 through 9, he floods the world in judgment for the sin of violence and murder. And then in a, a dramatic appearance in Genesis 19, he comes down personally to oversee the judgment and sentencing of Sodom and Gomorrah. He, he sends his angels to investigate because the outcry of the city uh, against these cities was great and the sin was very grave. And so he sends his messengers to see if what he heard was true. Not because he doesn't know. He does. But he is modeling for us that every charge ought to be uh, investigated thoroughly before a verdict given. And so God came down to examine them, and when he did, they were found guilty. They were found lacking, and they were destroyed. And remember, this is, this is God we're talking about. He, he doesn't make poor judgments. He makes perfect judgments. And God wants you and I to know that he is the judge of all the earth and will hold every inhabitant, including everyone in this room, accountable to him. But not only is he the judge... He is also the deliverer. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses sees a burning bush. He watches it and he, he realizes the bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. And so he goes to investigate. And when he does, something happens that Moses never could have imagined. He encounters there at this burning bush the living God. God reveals himself to Moses. And he tells Moses, 
I have heard the cry of my people in Egypt. I have heard of their oppression, and I will deliver them. And Moses, I'm going to use you to do it. He begins to tell Moses, to instruct Moses as to what Moses must do. And then at a pivotal point, Moses asks, what is your name? Exodus 3, 13 through 14. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God reveals himself as the great I am. And that's not his name. He's, he's telling Moses, I exist. It's an expression of what we call in theology the aseity of God. It means that God has no needs. He is dependent on nothing. And he has the power of existence within himself. I, I mentioned this not long ago, speaking of creation. There was never a time when God was not. He always is. And we're not like that, are we? We need oxygen. We need food. We need water. We need sleep. What happens if you don't get those? We're dependent on our hearts pumping and our lungs working. Our life is dependent on so much happening. We, we don't have the power of life within ourselves. It's derived from elsewhere, and it has to be maintained. I mean, you had a point when life was given to you, wasn't there? There was a point in time when you began to exist. And you need things to sustain that life. But God has always lived without any aid from anyone or anything. It's hard to imagine a being that has the power of life and being in existence in himself. It's hard to imagine that everything that lives and moves and has its being does so derived from God the source. But that is who he is. And this God sets out through Moses to deliver and to save a people for himself. In Exodus 4 through 14, we see God's hand at work as he shows himself to be the savior of his people. He sends plagues and delusions and blood and darkness and death on the land of Egypt in order to set his people free. He brings them out with a strong hand. He throws his enemies down in defeat as he delivers Israel from bondage. None can stand against him. The mightiest nation in the world, Egypt, at the time, it's devastated beyond recovery by God as he saves his people. Sometimes a great effort has to be undertaken to save somebody. And it's never without great danger and great loss. Many were delivered from the Nazis in World War II, but the cost was great and many millions died before they could be saved. Even in Israel right now, an effort is being made to save hostages, and it isn't going as well as anyone had hoped. Rescuing a people held captive is no easy task, unless God is the one doing the rescuing. And here, he makes it look easy. He doesn't break a sweat. He doesn't suffer any loss. He brings his people out of bondage, and he does not lose a single one of them to the enemy. When they're trapped between the army of Pharaoh that's rampaging towards them on one side and, and the Red Sea uh, cornering them, uh, hemming them in on the other, God parts the water for them to pass across on dry ground. 
And then when the Egyptian army followed, the sea came in and drowned the entire army so that none from this oppressive country could harass or pursue them any longer. The deliverance was total. And we see revealed in Scripture that our God is a delivering God. And after this salvation, He shows Himself as a lawgiver. He writes certain laws into nature itself, natural law, and at Sinai, he introduces himself in Exodus 20, verse 2, saying, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And what follows, many of you may know this, it's the Ten Commandments. Commands, rules of law given by God and binding on all of those who belong to him, which isn't just Israel, but everyone he has made. All of creation. Remember, we belong to him, and we, because we belong to him, he has the right to rule. And he rules through law, and he gives that law as a supreme law giver onto tablets of stone. In the wandering in the wilderness, God shows himself to be a guide. He leads the people in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And not only does he guide them, he sustains them in the wilderness with bread from heaven, manna from heaven, and water from the rock. God shows himself to be a sustainer. But what he is here for Israel in miniature, he is for the world Enlarge. He provides all our food and drink. Why does it grow? Because the sun shines and it makes it. But why does the sun shining on it make it grow? God makes it grow. He sustains us with breath, with the beating of our hearts, and He leads people. He is a guide through conscience, through nature, especially through His Word, leads us the way we should go. He says to all, all people of all places, of all time, this is the way. Walk in it. And he is the light of the world as a guide. And he is a sustainer. And if you were ever separated from God, truly and completely cut off from him, separated, you wouldn't just die. You would simply cease to exist. We see right now God upholds all life and all people in the palm of his hand. He's also a conqueror. The land of Canaan, where he sent Israel to drive out the inhabitants because of their sin, and then take the land as their own, God went before them to overthrow their enemies. By his command, the walls of Jericho crumbled down to the earth. By his command, armies that outnumbered his people ten to one were put to flight, and at his command, the sun stands still in the sky so that his enemies would be defeated. We see our God has revealed himself as many way, in many ways, and he is a God of power unimaginable, of wisdom beyond comprehension, of benevolence beyond belief, justice that is always perfect. He is a savior and sustainer of the world. But I think one of the most impressive visions of God in the Old Testament has to come from Isaiah chapter 6. It's God in his heavenly throne room. Isaiah 6 verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, each having six wings. With two, they covered his face. With two, he covered his feet, and with two, he did fly. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God is holy. What does that mean? It means he is unlike anything else in creation. He is unique in his character and his qualities and his attributes. Nothing can compare to him. He's in a class all of his own. He is holy, majestic, and glorious. And that is what Isaiah is seeing here, a glimpse in a vision of God's holiness. He sees the Lord high and lifted up, seated on his throne. The train of his robe, we're told, fills the temple. Have you ever seen a coronation? Maybe Prince Charles, or you went back and watched Queen Elizabeth, or maybe in some other country. Well, the king will come with the train of the robe, and it'll be long, going on behind him, 10, 15, 20 feet. Why? Well, it's a display of the glory of the king. He's showing off his splendor and his majesty with the length of his robe. But here in the temple throne room of God, the robe runs down from where the Lord is sitting, and it goes all the way to the back of the room. Then it begins to fold over on itself and go the other direction, and it covers the whole of the temple. It fills the temple. And then above, up in the vast expanse over his throne, the seraphim, the burning ones, angels are flying back and forth to and fro, singing the praises to the Lord. Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with his glory. When they do this, at the voice of these angels, not, not of the voice of the one on the throne, just of his mere servants, when one of them speaks, the whole temple trembles. A vision like this would be terrifying. It would undo any man, even Isaiah. When he sees it, he, he calls out a curse on himself. Woe is me, not because what he saw was bad, but because what he saw was too glorious for him to take in. He calls down a curse on himself. He says, woe is me, I am undone. God on his throne in his glory, his holiness, it's too much for even the best of men to bear. It's like looking at the sun. The sun isn't bad. The sun is a good thing, the sun in the sky. We need it. We would die without it. But if you stare at it directly, it will blind you. And God is good. But his glory here is revealed. It's so piercing. It's so brilliant that to look upon him threatens to disintegrate Isaiah. He is a great and awesome God to whom none can compare. Now, maybe you're thinking at this point, well, thank you for the theology lesson, Corey, but I don't see what any of this has to do with Christmas. Well, you may not see what this has to do with Mary or Joseph or the shepherds watching their flocks by night or wise men seeking out a star. But if you don't think any of this has to do with Christmas, then I don't think you know what Christmas is actually about. You see, every revelation that God gave about himself in the Old Testament, I mean, certainly all of the ones that we looked at this morning, every one of them is a revelation of God the Son. John chapter 12, verse 41 explains who it was that Isaiah saw, and he didn't just see a vision of God. It says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him of Christ the vision Isaiah saw was a vision of Jesus Christ it was God the son that he saw he is the one who is adored and praised by angels he is the one who is sitting on the cosmic throne he is the one whose 
glory made the prophet cry out in agony. It was a vision of the glory of Christ. So what about the rest? John, in his gospel, does everything he can to remind us that Jesus is God. But not just any God, and not as so often Christians think, a new kind of God or a new representation of God. And I don't know anybody who would actually say that, but that's, that's kind of how we think. There is Jesus. He's in the background of the Old Testament, almost hidden, and he's, he's talked about here and there. And there's a, a prophecy about him here or there, but he's neither here nor there. And then suddenly and unexpectedly, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son and the person of Jesus, appears and he comes to the forefront in the New Testament. Absolutely not. John's gospel labors to show you that Jesus is the man, that the man in the flesh, he is the God of the Old Testament. You see, the Bible teaches us something about God the Father. Nobody has ever seen him. They haven't. This is what Jesus says, John 6, 45 and 46. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, Except he, we, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. You say, what's he saying? Jesus is telling us the only one who has ever seen the Father is God the Son. Same thing in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God except the Son. If that's the case, then what do we make of all of the appearances of God in the Old Testament? What do we do with Adam and Abraham and Moses and Isaiah? When the Apostle Philip came to Jesus and asked him to show him the Father... Do you remember Jesus' answer? It's in John 14, 8 through 9. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? What is Philip asking? He's asking to see the one that he has read about and heard about over and over in the Old Testament. That's who Philip is asking Jesus to see. He says, show me him. Show me the one who I've, I heard the stories about in, in synagogue school. Show me God. And Jesus tells him, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He is shocked that Philip has been with him all of this time and still didn't understand. But what is Jesus saying? He is saying he is the perfect representation of God the Father. But he's also saying that all of those appearances in the Old Testament were appearances of God the Son. Not to say that the Son is the Father, but that the appearances of God in the Old Testament were appearances of the Son. And this is not the only passage. It would be enough, but the rest of Scripture affirms this. Consider Jude. Jude, speaking of the whole ordeal of the Exodus in Jude Verse 5, so he's speaking about when God delivered his people from Egypt and all of that that, that, that entails and, and everything that happened along the way. Listen to what he says, Jude 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. You see what it says? Everything you read about God from Exodus to the book of Numbers and to Deuteronomy, all of it is Jesus at work. The plagues, that was the Lord Jesus Christ. The angel of death, the parting of the Red Sea, the drowning of the Egyptians, the pillar of fire and of smoke, the appearance on Sinai and the giving of the law, the ground opening up and swallowing down guilty rebels, 
All of it was Christ who saved a people out of Egypt. This is why Jesus answers his accusers in John 8, and he tells them, before Abraham was, I am. He is not only telling them that he is the self-existent one who has never had a beginning, he is telling them, I am the one who met with Moses in the wilderness. In 1 Corinthians 10, we're told the rock that sustained the people with water when they were wandering in the desert was Christ. He tells us in John 6, he is the true manna from heaven. And in Colossians 1, 15 through 17, it reminds us that even creation itself was created by God the Son. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, by who? By Jesus Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him, He is their maker, and for Him, He is their master. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. You remove Christ out of the picture, the universe, every life, history itself ceases to exist. He is the image of the invisible God. And even when you read about God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. And when they fell, he searched them out and cursed them and also showed them mercy. It was Christ. And when there was nothing, and all things were being spoken into existence, it was from the lips of God the Son that those words came. I said, why does any of this matter? Because unless you understand this, you can never understand what you celebrate at Christmas time. Because this God that we have been marveling at for the last half hour, this God is the one born of Mary lying in the manger as a helpless little boy. I mean, can you believe it? The one who spoke all things into existence, who sustains and upholds them in his hand, who commands the moon and the sun and the stars, who distributes life and death, who gives the law and judges all is served by angels and can shake the universe with nothing but his presence. He is the one lying helpless in the manger. He is the one descended from heaven, took on flesh. This is what it means when we say, Emmanuel, God with us, or speak of God in the flesh. I mean, has there ever been such a, conden uh, a condescension? Has somebody so glorious ever descended so low? This is what we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate God the Son, Jesus Christ, coming from heaven to earth in the flesh. But that begs the question, why would he come? Why would God do this? Why would the one who has no need for anything, who is perfectly contented in himself, why would he empty himself and come into this world as a helpless, crying human child? Over and over again in Scripture, when it speaks of Jesus' advent, of his, his arrival in Bethlehem, of his coming, it's almost always to save his people. Matthew 1.21, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. Or Mark 10.45, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Or Luke 19, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save 
that which was lost, or maybe most succinctly, 1 Timothy 1.15, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. You see, there was a terrible problem in the world, and it was a terrible problem for you. The creator of this world, the owner of all life, the lawgiver and the judge, he is all of these things to all of us. But many deny he has created them, rebel against his ownership, and have rejected his law, and will be judged by him. How many? All, without exception. And the biblical word for this treason against God is sin. And all have sinned and fallen short of his glory, and you know it, don't you? I mean, how many people in this room would dare to say, I am perfect, and I have never, ever done anything wrong? You would embarrass to even entertain the thought, wouldn't you? But why? Why will your conscience not allow you to say, I have never done anything wrong? Well, because it knows it isn't true. But why? Well, the police aren't after you, are they? I mean, you haven't broken any human laws. There's not a warrant out for your arrest. And you maybe haven't even broken any of the social laws around you. You, you fit in quite well. But you're not perfect and you know it. You must have fallen short somewhere. Whose law have you fallen short of? Why does your conscience tell you something is wrong, something is always falling short in me? Well, if you don't know, I can tell you. It's God's law, which is written on your heart, speaks to you through your conscience. It's a law you know and a law that convicts you when you do what you know is wrong, even if anybody else or everybody else says it's okay. You know when you do what is wrong because all have sinned. There's not two classes of people. There's not sinners and non-sinners. No, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is why he came. He didn't come to save those who were righteous. He came to save those who were unrighteous. He didn't come to save those who were healthy. He came to save those who know that they are sick. But there are two kinds of people in this regard. There are those who have trusted in Christ, the only Savior of the world, and those who won't. There are sinners who have graciously had their sins forgiven, and those who continue unforgiven in their sin. And if you are in the latter, then you know exactly the kind, then you are exactly the kind of person Christ came to save. He didn't come for the righteous, but the unrighteous. He came for those who are spiritually void, empty, and have no claim on him. He came for those who are spiritually dead. How do you take hold of Christ? How do you, how do you take hold of this forgiveness? By repenting and by believing the gospel that Jesus Christ came from heaven, died for our sins, and rose again on the third day. You pray and you ask and you trust in Christ. It honors God, not just to celebrate that he came, but to remember why he came. And Christmas is a joyful reminder to many of the salvation they have received by faith in Christ. But to many more, and I don't know if this is you, but if it is, if Christmas has, has become nothing but a diversion from the reminder that a day is coming when you will have to give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ,
if Christmas is just a, a happy distraction? doesn't have to be. Listen, if that's you and you don't know him and you're a stranger to Christ and he's a stranger to you, don't waste another year and let it go by alienated from him. Don't let Christmas be a time without Christ. Be reconciled to God. Have your sins forgiven, your debt of guilt erased, your shame taken away, and your conscience made clean. Know what it is you celebrate this Christmas season. God came down from heaven to save you from your sins. It is a joy in this salvation that surpasses every joy in life. It is a life that is in abundance. It's what you were made for. God is worthy of your life. He is worthy of your praise. And so don't have another Christless Christmas where God is, uh, the the Lord Almighty becomes nothing but a, a tradition or a trinket. Recognize Him for who He is. Go to Him as the Savior and Creator. Recognize Him and give Him His proper position as your Maker and your Master and your Savior and your Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for humbling yourself into this world even unto death. How can it be? How can it be, God, that you would humiliate yourself like you did? God, how great your love for your people. Lord, a a man might stoop down for someone who loves him. But Lord, there was no lower you there was there was no lower you could go. You were exalted to the highest position for all time and had always been there. And Lord, you came to be, Lord, you came not as a king, not as a prince, but as a son of two peasants born in a cave in a trough for feeding animals. Lord, you love us. You came to save us. We didn't deserve what you have done, but out of nothing but love, you did it anyway. And I pray, Lord, that you would be exalted and that everybody in this room would know the joy of your salvation. Thank you, God. Please, Lord, give them the grace to come. It's in your name we pray. And it's in your Son we rejoice. Amen.